Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Reese Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. Keeping teams motivated is always a challenge and becomes even more so when a team is remote. Today's guest, Yen Tan, is the co-founder of Kona, a platform whose mission is to make being a good person at work mainstream. Kona is a Slack integration that allows managers to consistently check in on their direct reports and track morale so that burnout can be tackled before it becomes an organization-wide problem. In today's episode, we discuss how to empower middle managers navigating work-life balance with remote teams and Yen's prediction for the future. Yeah, hi, my name is Yen Tan. I'm co-founder of Kona. We're the manager success platform and employee well-being platform in Slack. Uh, I'm 23 years old and this has been my career. For the last four years, I've been feverently studying remote work, talking to a lot of people ops leaders and trying to make work a little bit happier and healthier. Could you share um, a little bit about some of the pain points uh, that you and the founding team at Kona, uh, I guess, identified and are working to solve? Yeah. So admittedly, this was a dorm room startup. We were a bunch of 19-year-olds, me and my two co-founders, Sid and Andrew, and we didn't have a lot of work experience under our belt. And thankfully, we had a lot of curiosity and a lot of humility about that. And so before we wrote a single line of code, we went out and interviewed over 100 remote managers between late 2019 and early 2020. And some of the big problems we identified are still the problems we're facing today. The fact that remote workers feel isolated, face burnout at higher rates than in-person workers. The fact that managers felt super under-resourced and understaffed a lot of the times, and they were were being asked to do so many jobs at once. We really wanted to lean in and find ways to actually support managers and create tools that approach the squishier side of work, the kind of soft skill, management, leadership aspects of it. And that's basically what we're still focused on today, four years later. So you mentioned that you started this business when you were still in college, essentially, and you were just sort of coming out of it. Uh, so that's an unusual thing. It's not common to, to be in that sort of position. It would be really interesting to hear, as someone that's fairly early in their career and is, is having a lot of success at what you're doing already so far, um, if you were to kind of distill down your journey so far or your thoughts so far into an elevator pitch into something sort of uh to to be able to summarize it what would you say is your overarching career mission also take into account that you're very early on in your career like it's difficult for the for even people that are more mature in their careers to know exactly where they want to go but where would you say this is this is going for yourself where do you want this to go yeah i love this question if i had to We have a lot of elevator pitches that we have to give as founders, and I don't think I've ever thought about having to give an elevator pitch for my career. But if I had to take a stab, I have a background as a writer. I've always been interested in stories. And so if I can help tell and represent underrepresented voices, minority folks in work and in tech, that's where I want my career to go. And right now, I feel like the most underrepresented voice is actually middle managers that are doing the most heavy lift at an organization, but 
don't really have the resources or at least the help that they need to do a successful job. Well, that's far too interesting to to move on from that. Uh, <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> uh, I think middle managers, uh, actually, you know what, we had someone on the podcast, uh, maybe two seasons ago, maybe one season ago, and they were, they were talking about how the uh, the middle management layer of the company is like the core of the body, right? You've got the head up top thinking about direction, thinking where we're going. You've got the legs down below doing the hard work of actually moving forward. But if you don't have that strong core, then you just flop over and, and, and exactly. you're going to be on the ground. And that, that analogy has never, never sort of left me since then. So you mentioned that you want to tell the stories of middle management what are those stories so far? What, what, if, if, if there was the ability for this to be the, the, this collective voice of, of middle management, what would you say that they're, they're, they're screaming and shouting from the rooftops right now? There are so many stories that we've heard over the course of the pandemic. For reference, since we started doing that user research back in like early 2020, there was, we, we've talked to a thousand remote managers so far and you hear horror stories and kind of all sorts of stuff the kind of idea that, oh, all of a sudden I'm asked to be the therapist for my team through a global pandemic where I don't even know why I'm taking this call in my kitchen. We've heard a lot of remote managers having to deal with the pressures of that. With more recent kind of stories of layoffs and the kind of tech recession that we're in, middle managers are having to be that steady rock, that kind of pillar that everything's going to be okay and reassure and motivate their teams and even drive high performance with understaffed and under kind of handed teammates that don't have enough to kind of enact the kind of change that they need to do. So we're asking a lot constantly of these managers that mind you, on average, spend about six or seven hours in meetings every single day, doing one-on-ones, managing strategy on top of the other types of work that they need to do, managing calendars, understanding and staying on top of OKRs. It's a really tall task. And sometimes it's literally an engineer who performed really well, suddenly was handed this role and no longer writes a single line of code and is kind of shell-shocked that their role has changed so dramatically. Yeah. Do you think they should have to do that? They are, they are having to do that. And I, I guess, is it a, a new emergent responsibility? I guess I make an assumption even just saying that. Has it always been a responsibility of any kind of manager, not just a middle manager, to be uh, the rock, to be the therapist that you just mentioned. Uh, and it's just become a larger part of the role or it's become a more complex set of problems that they're having to counsel their reports on. Or is it unfair? Should it, should it not be the responsibility in the first place? Is the organization letting those managers down in some ways by shouldering them with that responsibility when it should be dealt with in another way? I think it's a tricky problem because at its core, organizations are based on trust and it's far easier to build trust with that manager that you see every single day that's asking you how tasks are doing, how work is doing, how your kids or dog is doing, and maybe less easy to kind of lean and trust that kind of distant people ops or HRBP that you theoretically should be able to lean on, but maybe you don't know their name, let alone how to describe that you're facing a mental health issue at work. And so when we rely on these kind of really trust first, heavy relationships in order to push and actually drive psychologically safe conversations, it's a tall order to ask employees to extend that trust, especially in a remote sense, to parts of the organization that they should functionally lean on, but maybe don't have that relationship with just yet. And so I don't know if in the current mode of work, 
we have any other option but to rely on these managers. To answer your question, though, I don't think that they should be shouldering so much with so little resourcing. Managers need to have a lot of training. They need to be able to have their own kind of therapy outlets and outlets for leaning and resourcing and community. And so many organizations, unfortunately, are understaffed. People ops folks were some of the hardest hit by that recent kind of layoff and reorgs. And so we need to start figuring out where those resources are going to come from. And if the L&D person just got laid off, who is going to actually support these managers? If we're understaffed on HRBPs, how do we actually make sure the managers have somebody to talk to and lean on and somebody to trust? It's a really difficult situation. And as a result, a lot of managers rely more, I would say, on their VPs and directors above them, assuming they have a good relationship and that the VP and director actually cares enough, rather than maybe the HRBP or somebody on the sideways uh, kind of line for the organization. It's a really tricky problem, but I think it requires a lot of intentionality and understanding just where the weaker chain links are inside the org. Well, first off, do you agree that there has been somewhat of a shift uh, when it comes to working relationships where there is more there is more personal in the working relationship than there used to be? The sort of professional boundaries that maybe existed in the past are, are, are lessened or have changed at least um, to the point now where I think people are, are, are more personally on the same wavelength uh, with each other than they maybe have been in the past. And as I said, I think that remote work added an extra layer to that. It, it, it maybe resulted in people craving that connection more because of the barriers that exist. And it's kind of the two things have come together with the coming down of that just, I don't know, culturally uh, changing. Uh, but then also this this sort of exacerbating factor on top. Do you think the blurry boundaries that that potentially creates increases those expectations on managers? It's really interesting to kind of see somebody's fiance for the first time and actually be able to put like a face to the name because they walked in the background of a Zoom call or to be able to kind of uh, see somebody's kid screaming in the background and to kind of have that little tidbit, that little snapshot and sneak peek of somebody's life. And so in a way, we're the most kind of intimate with our direct reports that we've ever been because we're seeing them in their kitchens, we're seeing them in their home environments. And yet there is this dissonance that you can't actually reach over and tap somebody's shoulder when they look a little bit off, when they're kind of feeling a little bit more sullen, or you can't actually offer a tissue when they're crying at their desk and you're in a one-on-one -on -one trying to talk them through a pretty difficult situation. And so there is this interesting gap that requires a lot of emotional labor and a lot of intentionality that managers typically have to shoulder when it comes to emotionally supporting and being there and building trust and investing in the lives of their coworkers without actually having that physical presence, the body language, and the ability to kind of be actually physically there. It's a lot. And it, I think we underplay the cognitive load that this requires of us day in and day out as we're working remotely. Okay, so I went <laughs> pretty deep into to one particular thing uh, early on because it was just interesting what you were talking about. Let, let's zoom out a little bit and, uh, and talk about some more broad things that you deal with and, and that you see and i know that you've just uh finished a, a report that there's there's some interest in finance that you want to share as well um so with that what are some of the workplace challenges that you're focused on solving with your work at kona yeah when it comes to our work at kona we really want to understand how to enable managers for success 
And as a result, a lot of managers bring to us several different problems. The first is the inability to tackle difficult, hard conversations. That is probably one of the most foundational skills of leadership that folks don't really talk about, but the ability to actually utilize radical candor, crucial conversation frameworks, and to actually lean in and have those conversations that can really up-level a, team, a teammate, help them grow, allow them to understand their weak spots and blind spots, we don't come out of the womb with that knowledge. And so the kind of gap, the skill gap that we need to fill is something we get a lot of questions about. Of course, we get a lot of questions also as a well-being platform about burnout. And especially as it's Mental Health Awareness Month, that is becoming kind of a fever pitch. A lot of managers and people ops folks in particular have been reaching out to us for free workshops and kind of support systems when it comes to tackling burnout on their teams. There is a kind of increased sound noise around high performance culture and yet uh, people ops teams are very well aware that that comes at a certain cost when you do have less of a headcount and less resourcing and less available benefits for your employees and so that is spelling out burnout for quite a few organizations that burnout workshop that i mentioned is one of the most popular workshops that i give and i think after releasing insights from this report it's very obvious why. After serving over 300 remote managers and individual contributors, we found that 70% of them had experienced some level of burnout in just the last three months. We're talking February to May, which is crazy. And on top of that, HR, marketing, and support are some of the most frequently burnt out organizations. And so we're asking people ops teams to solve the burnout issue at scale at the organization when ironically, they are the most burned out of the population. Do you have any idea or any thoughts into why, I, I mean, I think anyone listening to this podcast understands why HR or, or people teams uh, may be burnt out, but um, the other two, any, any particular insights into marketing or, or support? I think marketing teams are really hard hit through layoffs. I think, unfortunately, because sometimes marketing is seen as less connected to revenue, they're some of the first to go. And as a result, their teams have shrunken significantly and they're still asked to do some pretty tall OKRs. And for support teams, I think you're constantly customer facing. And so you're firefighting and firefighting and needing to put on a smile and reduce your time to answer ratio. It's just, it's a very high demand, high turnover role that requires a lot of soft people skills. And it kind of can chew people up and spit them out in a lot of ways. Something I would share specifically around support teams and, and, and frankly, actually any very customer facing uh, team whether that be sales or, or otherwise as well um we're in this world now where everybody talks about you know working uh async working well as a, as a remote company and we are probably one of the more extreme examples of a company like that as well um but i think one thing that's maybe worthwhile talking about and and kind of being honest about is the tension that can exist between customer facing teams and uh, maybe what your culture is dictating internally. There's some very good reasons why you should be creating a culture that is saying, yes, we're going to be async first, we're going to document, we're going to um, prioritize written communication over verbal communication in certain circumstances. But then there's just the facts of life of being a, a customer facing or externally facing in, in whatever way, maybe that may be other vendors that you work with as a business. and and. They don't care about you know ASIC practices and documentation. They're like, give me the answer now. Like, if you want us to be your customer, or you want us to continue being a, a vendor or a partner or, or whatever the, uh, the relationship is. Definitely, I think one of the biggest things that we keep hearing is this 
cognitive dissonance of what the company says outwardly, the values that they promote, and what actually gets put into process and how that employee experiences the company day to day. And I love the idea that you just mentioned that there needs to be nuance, that a process can never be one size fits all, and it can never be static. It constantly needs to iterate upon itself. And so taking one example, I've actually chatted with quite a few leaders that work at four-day workweek companies, which I think is one of the most exciting innovations of the future of work that we have. But there is this kind of downside when you work in a customer-facing role where you do need to be 24-7 on top of the customer. And if you're told technically that Friday should be off, but technically you should be there for the customer, and there's no real clear delineation as to how you're supposed to show up, employees are always going to default to overperforming and trying to do their best, both for their own job security and for the sake of the companies that they love. And so they may be pushing past their own boundaries and what they're taught that their boundaries should be in order to, for the company to succeed. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point. I've never heard anyone make that point, actually, in that any policy that you have, if you're going to go to a four, a four day work week, that shouldn't just be an internal policy that should that should also be a, a, a there's a comms piece to your customers or as you say, anybody, any anybody that could be a customer into the future that as a business, we are this, we know the rest of the world isn't this and may never be this, but this is us as a company. So we, we need to be able to set expectations or as you say, any any uh, great area that's created like that is is only going to, the only person that's going to lose in that situation is the is the employee that's given this unclear situation where they're they're forced to to be in limbo. Yeah, and I think the easy thing for leaders to do is just say, oh, it doesn't work. Obviously, we won't be able to have customer-facing teams with four-day work weeks. Look at Buffer. They're killing it, and they're definitely executing for the last three years, mind you, on a four-day work week. It's possible, but it requires a lot of research, intentionality, asking other four-day work week companies, how did you do it? What were some of the challenges you faced? And I think when PeopleOps teams are able to put in that little bit extra effort, when leaders are fully aligned as the sacrifices and kind of shortcomings that they've chosen to opt into in the favor of driving a more healthier, mindful future of work, and that that's the kind of value that they want their company to represent. I think that's when you have a process set up for success. Otherwise, you just have this kind of weird limbo area. Something that Yen and the team at Kona have found through their research is that everyone is looking for something different from work and has different priorities. While a connection to team members may be extremely important for one employee, it can be a small consideration for another. What this means is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to engagement, and also no foolproof way to spot low morale. I wanted to know Yen's thoughts on why burnout occurs and how to combat it when working with remote teams. Yen also mentioned the insidiousness of toxic positivity and why always looking on the bright side can actually be a bad thing. So I'd be really interested to know what are some of the ways that you see low morale cropping up? What does it look like in teams? Uh, what does it even sound like in teams? Yeah, I think the this really depends on that relationship that they have with the manager. I think the manager would be the first person to know whether something is wrong. If the manager does not have a good relationship with their teammates, low morale doesn't sound like anything. It sounds like silence, which is really interesting especially in a remote sense, in a remote setting. Workers may be completely facing some level of absenteeism, but they are still putting an effort. They just might be kind of quiet quitting, putting in 50% where they otherwise would put in 100. 
they have lost faith secretly in the organization and they are searching for other places or talking to friends and kind of moaning and groaning about what's wrong with the kind of workplace that they're in about the dis disillusionment that they're starting to face the kind of dissonance that they have between what the company they signed up for was and what they are currently now facing and having a lot of dinner conversations with friends and kind of similar positions it's really disheartening because low morale is not what an employee wants to be in they want to love their company they invested so much time effort and space into making this work and when it doesn't work it's very painful for all parties Low morale for highly psychological teams is very exciting. I, exciting in that you can catch it and that you can notice and address it directly. I think when you actually do have that level of trust, when you've actually invested in getting to know your coworkers, you can actually have honest conversations of, hey, I'm really concerned about that recent layoff we did. And I'm concerned about my job prospects. Honestly, what do you think I should do? Or, hey, like, I'm not, I know I'm not producing as much. I am going through kind of, I'm caretaking for this family member who's sick and this is really what's happening. And I think that's the beauty of kind of not having such, in the name of professionalism, having such distant relationships between coworkers and managers. We can actually be honest and upfront about what we're facing and be honest and upfront with the fact that life really does bleed into work and work together to help foster a better experience through that rather than pretending that one or two of those things don't exist and that we just have to grit our teeth and push forward. So I would hope that anybody who does feel disillusioned with their workplace can find somebody to talk to about that. It's a very isolating feeling and something that, yes, we need to address as HR teams and people teams and leaders, but also it's it's just a painful thing for anybody to have to go through. So you you touched on a couple of things there that I think we're related to the fact that low morale is something that is uh, insidious and can have a domino effect within your organization when one particular person leaves or maybe even not even leaves, just um, voices a particular opinion uh, based off of uh, you know low morale. For people, leaders that are listening to this, um, what would you say that they should prioritize first to, to be able to see that domino effect coming to be able to see that wave coming and then how to, to 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 manage that think about your regular touch points with those employees i think the interesting thing we see in response to that fear of the waterfall effect or fear of the domino is this leaning into toxic positivity to say i don't actually don't care about how you're feeling only tell me when you're good that's it keep it keep it kosher keep it tight and to not actually allow folks to have the space to talk about the struggles that they're going through. When that happens, when toxically positive cultures occur, employees still talk about what they're struggling with. It's just not with you. And so really lean into those one-on-ones, actually create agendas that are employee-centric, not just a list of tasks, items to check off and monitor. Make sure that you're asking about how that employee is really doing. Spend the time to sit, maybe give an extra three seconds of silence and try to understand really what is the life context that this person's going through? What are the actual goals that they're trying to accomplish in their career? And how can you as a manager be the shepherd for that entire experience rather than just somebody drilling them to deliver something? They're so much more than a deliverable machine. They're a human being and they have dreams and aspirations that as a manager, it's your job to unlock. And so one-on-ones is an easy example because everybody does one-on-ones, but in small little ways, making those bids for connection, checking in with a teammate when you notice that they're operating a little bit, maybe more quietly on Slack, just saying, how are you doing? Maybe doing a Kona check-in or some level of a stand-up to kind of have a daily touch point with them. 
those little tiny touch points are the ways that you make trust work over time. And that's how you unlock larger, harder conversations that can really make low morale obvious and actually help you address it proactively rather than suddenly being surprised that half your team is gone. There was a couple of things you said there that were really interesting. The first one was this idea of toxic positivity. Uh, and you actually said something before that I think relates to that, which is this idea of a high performance culture. I have personally heard in, in various different places, either firsthand or from others, this idea or, or this sentiment that if someone is struggling and potentially even leaves, that they're they're not the right type of person for this organization or they're 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 almost like they're not cut out for 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 this organization i'd be really interested to hear is that is that a sentiment is that anything that you've ever seen in in the companies that you speak to and the data that you have we've definitely seen that time and time again of this idea that you're either with us or you're not and this is wartime although every time that every i hate the word wartime mentioned in a business context we have a war going on in ukraine that is war war is not like you having to answer this email for this one client so just wanted to call that out but i it makes me very disheartened because oftentimes separate of the actual work performance you have these high performers that are getting burnt out and not being acknowledged the fact that they are getting burnt out anybody who is low who is empty on their cup is going to underperform that's actually one of the three facets of burnout a lack of professional efficacy is literally one of the defining factors of burnout and so when we keep asking more of somebody who is empty we're pouring from an empty cup and it's just not going to work ironically the thing that would help them is to actually ask how you're doing offer those mental health benefits being able to allow them an extended pto vacation and a lot of leaders that lean into the more empathetic, compassionate sources of work get more from their employees. Surprise, surprise that taking care of people actually enables them to do some of their best work. And so when I think the use of the word high performance culture is so often used as an excuse that these like OKRs are ever shifting and they're not going to change and that you're either with us or you're not, and you're either going to be part of it or not. And I just think that that narrow-mindedness, that tunnel vision is hurting businesses more than they realize, and that there needs to be space for the human aspect of work because humans make work possible. For the people leader that's listening to this and maybe have execs in their business, any anyone in their business that is kind of broadcasting these messages, which uh, in a lot of ways is shifting responsibility from uh, the organizational structure of a business to individual responsibility that you know you're not cut out for this it takes a certain type of person for the people leader that's in a situation like that and 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 there's that cultural message being broadcast through their business what what sort of advice do you have for them to be able to deal with that i first want to say it's a really difficult position to be in to care a lot about your teammates and be in this between a rock and a hard place kind of spot where you need to you really want to advocate for what the teammates need but it goes directly against what leaders seem to be advocating for and what you kind of get messages from from above. In all honesty, in some of those cases, it doesn't work out. Managers leave because the leadership just does not simply align with what they actually are looking for. And the manager, uh, the leaders are directly speaking against the values that they supposedly hold. In those situations, sometimes you can't do anything about it. In the situations where you do want to try, it's very difficult it's not easy, but you can try to give upwards feedback or at least speak to folks that can help advocate. 
a group of managers can have a much larger voice than just a single manager. So if you know other managers that share the same type of sentiment, being able to gather a case and gather evidence and being able to actually talk about these things and then presenting it to an HRBP that understands the situation can just make your case stronger internally. If you do have some relationship with your CEO because it's a flatter organizational structure, and fingers crossed that person is open-minded, well-intentioned, and open to feedback, a, a single difficult conversation could literally change the entire course of the business and allow for a lot better movement. Sometimes CEOs just don't simply know the weight of their words and the shadow that they cast. And so it can just be a single conversation that is eye-opener, eye light bulb moment. Unfortunately, it does take effort. And sometimes, oftentimes that effort is falling on the middle managers themselves. And I definitely want to acknowledge that that's not always right, or it doesn't always feel fair. But with a little bit of movement, with kind of understanding how to get that message across, you could literally change the course and the culture of the, the company as a whole. And that could be incredible. And a lot of employees could be thanking you in the future. So I think Kona is very well known as a company that has done a lot of the research. You have spoken to many, many companies uh, to, to understand what is actually going on out there. Um, we've done some of our own research, uh, and it'd be really interesting to hear that, how that compares, it contrasts to uh, some of the things that you're seeing in your own data. So we recently uh, released our employee disillusionment report. And as part of that, one of the really interesting findings that we found is that 50% of participants said that their number one priority in life was their mental health. Number five, was which is uh, the, the the least important um, was career advancement. So it'd be really interesting to hear how uh, that compares, or or some of the things you might have seen around the, the the findings that I just shared. Yeah, definitely. I think it's I love the fact that Oyster was able to capture that in a stat because it's something we see time and time again as we're talking about this problem and trying to really identify why mental health is such an underserved need at organizations. In our own research, we were leaning into who is burning out organizations and who are at the most risk. And in addition to that kind of 70% of remote workers experiencing some level of burnout, we actually also found that employees that had spent three to five years at a company that were at the most risk, which is really scary when you think about it, because those are some of your top talent. They're folks that have maybe graduated to a management level. They're the folks that have been kind of your senior individual contributors that are mentoring folks over time. And when you have that population that's at the most risk of burnout, that means that there is a huge leak in your employee experience platform where maybe you're not able to graduate those middle managers into director positions. You're not able to have that historic tribal knowledge seated in the organization when you lose those folks. And on top of that, I would say there's another 22% that disagreed that their company actually offered accessible well-being benefits. And so with folks prioritizing mental health, there is still this disservice of folks that are able to access mental health benefits. And we also tried to measure stigma in that there was a huge gap. We asked managers of teams and individual contributors whether or not conversations about mental health had actually happened at their organizations. And there was a massive gap in the word never. For managers of teams, they said that the like never having a conversation about mental health only occurred about 3.5%. 3.5% of them reported that they had never had a conversation about mental health. But individual contributors actually reported that 16% of the time, they never had a conversation about mental health. There's a big gap in what managers think that they're able to provide and what individual contributors actually experience. 
threw a bunch of stats at you, but I think the more nuanced part to answer your question is that it's really important who is prioritizing mental health at your organization actually could be the crucial key piece to unlocking retention and actually being able to preserve the workforce that you have and some of your most valuable talent. Absolutely. Just to reiterate that the first point you were mentioning as well about the people experiencing burnout the most are, are the, the the cohort of employees at that three to five year range. I, I think that's a really important thing to call out in that it's very common for companies to experience almost like a trough of engagement uh, where your new employees, you know, they're in their honeymoon period, they're, they're, they're just getting up to speed with the company, they're very excited. Um, and by about that one to two year period, that's when engagement can slump. And, and, and by the way, that's, that's natural. And I don't think we should, um, I don't think we should kind of come with the intention that we can completely remove that trough. I think that there are natural ebbs and flows in engagement uh, through tenure in a company. Um, but I think it's really important for companies to realize you, of course, want to get to the point where employees don't just stick around for a few years and move on, which is becoming increasingly common in the workplace. For you to become a company where an employee looks at the company and says, yeah, I can be here for life, like, or I could be here for decades. That is a very, very different type of company, very, very different proposition uh, for, for, for the company to be able to offer both culturally, both operationally. It's, it's not feasible in, in a lot of situations for, for companies, depending on maturity, depending on resources, a whole bunch of different things. Um, but yes, it's, it's really important to mention that. And of course, uh, burnout, mental health is kind of a, a microcosm of overall engagement. It's one of the major product predictors, one of the major influences on, on engagement. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I make, and I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I make it quite often, is how often I choose my own work over my well-being. And I think sometimes I justify that by saying I'm a founder, and the irony of me focusing on burnout and well-being and studying this for a living and still burning out is not lost on me. But I think a lot of the times I truly let that little voice of imposter syndrome get to me. And I think I don't belong here. I somehow lucked into this position. I'm too young to be doing this. So I need to work 10 times as hard to get this done. And I need to be working late. And that's what founders do. And I just kind of buy into this bullshit of hustle culture. What it does is actually it makes me less effective as a founder. I wake up like groggy. I can't, I'm disheveled for meetings. I can't really put two and two together. And it's all in the name of what a founder should be. I think I've bought into that for such a long time and I'm still working to fight that off. A founder doesn't need to do anything besides try to build something great and try to help people. I think those are like the two things that like most founders I know are trying to do. And that does not require you to kill yourself. If anything, like the long hours may be going against your actual end goal. I wanted to ask you one last question before we get on to thinking a little bit about the future. So um, you're a big champion of Kona's Manager Book Club. Can you tell me a bit more uh, about it and why you think it's so important? Yeah, I think, um, to be perfectly honest, the book club story is really funny because admittedly, it was an idea. I posted it on LinkedIn kind of saying, hey, anybody interested in this thing? And within 10 minutes, uh, after saying we were going to read Radical Candor, one of my favorite leadership books of all time, Kim Scott herself commented and said, I'll do a Q&A with you. And suddenly we had 150 signups from all sorts of managers, SAP, uh, Microsoft, Allbirds, the Lego group. And it was an onslaught of demand because Kim Scott is a goddess, but also because managers really crave an outlet for community building, 
for being able to talk to another manager and say, I know exactly what you're going through and to be seen in that way. And also to learn together. It's a little bit boring, I'll be honest, to do a company-sponsored training that's just a bunch of videos you have to watch in succession. It's much more valuable, I would argue, to have open discussions about these different things. We're super excited to have Celeste Headley with Do Nothing for Mental Health Awareness Month and kind of our May book club. Next month, we have Julie Zhou with The Making of a Manager. And after that, we have Russ Laraway for When They Win, You Win. We've been able to score some really awesome, awesome authors to talk about some of their works with some of the best books, I would argue, in leadership. And I'm just very excited to be able to create this ongoing community and to be able to welcome more managers into this club because some of the discussions we have are so vulnerable. You would never imagine that these are folks calling from a hundred different like spaces and locations and different time zones. They're talking like old friends because when you're a manager, you see stuff. You definitely have experienced the the trenches and to see and respect other managers in the space is just like a really beautiful thing. So it was kind of a happy accident, but now we're here and it's one of my favorite things about my job. Fantastic. So what's next for you? What's next for Kona? Um, the immediate thing is to get these reports out in the wild and just to kind of speak a lot more to that. I'm running a lot of these kind of free workshops. We're trying to get our hands dirty and really help these underserved, understaffed people ops teams with their L&D and training programs. I've been giving, like I said, a lot of burnout workshops and leading into that. For the product itself, we're really stepping beyond the little check-ins that we've been doing. And we're really trying to understand what does it mean to be a manager success platform? We're launching an AI coach. We've partnered with a top executive coaching firm to offer pocket coaching essentially in Slack that any coach can lean on and get 24-7 coaching on a difficult conversation, get questions and kind of reanalyze their situation and understand how they can properly word things to employees. We're leaning into different features for gratitude, recognition, and we're really trying to make sure that this is a manager first tool. So many culture tools out there are people ops focused. People ops loves this tool and then tells managers to use it and then managers don't use it. And then people ops teams get mad because they've spent tens of thousands of dollars on this tool. We want it to be manager focused because you have, let's just say 70 managers at an org of 300. You, that is again, the body of your organization and that tool should be for them in service of them and the employee experience that they are carrying out. And so that is what's next for Kona in both the very short term and the kind of very long term. A lot of things and exciting things happening for us. So we have a question that we ask everyone that comes on your world of work, and I'd love to ask it to you too. Uh, what's the best mistake you've ever made and why? Oh, man. Um, it's really hard to answer the question, what is my best mistake? Just because as founders, the name of the game is falling, failing. And just trying to lift yourself back up. And I think even though we say like, oh, the strength is like in getting back up. If you've ever gotten back up after scraping your knee or being on the floor, it's a push-up you have to do. Like the least kind of sexy push-up that you ever want to do in your life. I think a lot of the times the mistakes we make, at least in my head, they get framed as mistakes. But really, I just keep trying to reframe them into experiments. We can't assume that we're suddenly going to make that everything we do is going to turn into gold, that everything we try is going to work. And I think I just keep getting into that stuck hole because I'm a perfectionist and I really want this to succeed. But actually some of the best mistakes and best learnings we've had are from product swings and growth experiments that we've tried, we've marked as failed. And instead of actually sitting in the funk of, damn, I spent 40 hours on this one project and it didn't have any of the results I was anticipating, 
we celebrate that. We say, oh my God, we learned so much from that. We know now what not to do. And that is, I think, the joy and frustration and sanity of being a founder is to constantly try stuff for it not to work and for you to realize, okay, not that, not that road, but now I can try the other 99 roads on the map. And it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's totally fun. My conversation with Yen was a fantastic start to season four of New World of Work, and I enjoyed hearing their insights into monitoring and improving morale with remote teams. Here are some of my key takeaways from this episode. Middle managers should not be expected to be their team's therapist. While trust between direct reports and their managers is key, many middle managers are expected to take on the emotional labor of supporting their teams without the training and resources to do it. Prioritizing consistent touch points and mental health support is important for the overall health of an entire organization. Employees will talk when they're unhappy. Yen stresses that even in an organization with a culture of toxic positivity, employees are still going to vent when they're unhappy. If they feel they can't turn to PeopleOps leaders for support, a domino effect of low morale and low engagement can quickly take root. Priorities are shifting. Employees are increasingly prioritizing work-life balance and mental health over career aspirations. Organizations that don't keep up are going to struggle with retention. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of New World of Work. If you're interested in what drives disillusionment and how to prevent it, check out our recent disillusionment report. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.